0: It teaches, uh, at least this morning, with regard to eschatology or that which deals with the end times. That particular topic occupies actually a great amount of the content of sacred scripture. And so if we give ourselves to it, we can know what is the Lord has for us. And so that's what we are about uh, this morning, picking up from where we were last week. This is a bit of an unusual um, sermon format, I suppose. It's closer perhaps to teaching than it is to preaching. There's not a lot of illustrations and and the homiletics of it perhaps could be improved upon. But we're trying to cram a lot of material into a short period of time. And and so um, picking up from where we were last week, you have a handout in your bulletin. And um, as we began last week... Our purpose was to review ten reasons why we believe the rapture of the church will occur prior to the tribulation. That is, that Jesus Christ will return to snatch away or catch away his church prior to that period of time that is unfolded in the pages of the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, a time of unprecedented horror and devastation to come upon the earth. We said that there are ten reasons. We want to explore those reasons. And then this morning we're going to reflect upon the significance of it all for the life and vitality of the church. So coming up to speed here, we're uh, moving through the gears, getting you up to speed. Last time we noted the first reason that we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture was because it preserves the doctrine of eminence. That's there on your handout and I'm giving you scripture references that you can look over, but it does preserve the doctrine of eminence. That is, the any time return of Jesus Christ. That the return of Christ is the next event on the prophetic calendar of God. And that it hangs over this world. He can come at any time. And we believe that that is most consistent with a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. If the tribulation had to come first and then the return of Christ... We don't believe could be said in any meaningful way to be an any time event if there has to be preceded by a seven year period. Secondly, we believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church because it provides comfort to the church. We noted last time, 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18, and it finishes there with Paul's words. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We Find it hard to derive comfort if the answer was uh, you're suffering now, but don't worry, you've got seven more years of worse suffering to come. We don't see how that is a meaningful promise of comfort. Third, and still reviewing here, we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture because Christians are not destined for wrath. The Apostle Paul says again, First Thessalonians 5, 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. Fourth, in your list here, we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture because of distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. We noted that according to the classic rapture passage here in 1 Thessalonians 4, that the believers are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, thus leaving the earth populated with only unbelievers at that moment in time whereas at the second coming, Christ descends to the earth and the unbelievers are caught away into judgment, leaving only believers at that point in time. Thus, the two events cannot be the same and must be separated by some period of time. Fifth, we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church because of the purpose of the tribulation. We noted last time that the emphasis with regard to the tribulation period as laid out in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9 and as revealed in the New Testament, Matthew twenty four twenty five in particular, that it relates to the nation of Israel. Israel rejected their Messiah at his first coming. Jesus said to them that you will no longer see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that God will bring about this intense time of, of trial upon the earth in order to break the back of a stubborn people, His people who have steadfastly refused their Messiah. And at the end of that seven-year period, according to the prophet Zechariah, they will look on Me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. Zechariah 12 and verse 10. Sixth reason why we believe in a pre- tribulation or rapture. Those others were just reviews. So now we'll settle in on these. All right. Now, you're going to have to think with me a little bit on this one. By the way, if we want to find a, a text to land in here, you could open to 1 Thessalonians 4, one of the classic passages with regard to the rapture of the church. There are really three of them. John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and we will be moving around through all of them. But open now to 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 13-18, through if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 1183. Let me read the text. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. Probably you want to stick a piece of paper in that text or your thumb or something. Because we're going to be back and forth there. But now I'd like you to turn, if you would, with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. It'll be page 1153 in that few Bible. As we noted last time, the rapture of the church is not built upon a single verse. There is no silver bullet verse in which one could point to, for if that were the case, then all Christians would agree to the same understanding, and that is clearly not the case. But having said that, we don't believe that it is obscure or unknowable, and that indeed when we will piece together the various passages of Scripture, that the position that most... uh, harmonizes with the fewest number of problems. The least unanswerable questions is that of the pre-tribulational rapture. So let me add to our base of knowledge here in a minute, and then we're going to reason from that knowledge. First Corinthians 15, verse 51, the apostle says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And by the way, in the New Testament, sleep is a reference to the death of of a believer. He is talking about the death of a believer. Unbelievers are never spoken of as being sleeping with regard to the New Testament. It is reserved only for the believer because for the believer, their death is not a final state, is it? They will indeed wake to be in the presence of the Lord. So, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I remember the time I visited a nursery. I don't remember which church it was. And they had that painted over the... Uh, doorway of the nursery. Behold, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I thought that was pretty good. It was a misuse of the scripture, but I thought it was a good misuse of the scripture. So Anyway, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. The twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. The apostle Paul says so. Think with me on this, according to what he tells us here, that at that moment in time, when according to what Paul says in first Corinthians four, that the, the dead in Christ shall rise first. That is those who have been united to Christ by faith and then remaining believers who are alive will join him in the air. The apostle Paul says here that in a twinkling of an eye at the trumpet, we will be changed. We will be transformed. We will go from a human body as we now know it to a glorified human body. That according to Matthew chapter 22 verse 30 will be like unto the angels. That is, it will no longer have the ability to procreate, no longer the ability to produce physical children. So if that is true, and it seems to be clearly so, and beyond that, and I guess I need to add one more piece of of knowledge here, and then we'll tie it all together. So go with me to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, to be reminded for you of the sheep and the goat judgment, verse 31. We're in Matthew twenty-five, thirty-one, the end of that sheep and goat judgment where Christ, when He establishes the beginning of His kingdom, it says He gathers the Gentiles before Him. Verses 31 and 32, right? All the nations will be gathered before Him. He will separate them as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will put the righteous or the sheep on His right, the goats on His left. And then verse 46 sort of ties it all up and it says these, that is those who are the unrighteous, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, you've got to think with me a little bit. If... The rapture of the church occurs at that point in time when the second coming of Christ. Then according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, all the believers are given glorified bodies no longer capable no longer capable of producing children, right? And according to Matthew 25 here, all the unrighteous are separated out and sent off into eternal punishment. That leaves no one to produce children. And the production of children is an essential part of the millennial kingdom. For we know from Isaiah 65, just write this down, verses 17 through 25, for example. Or Zechariah 8, verses 20 through 23. Or one that I will turn you to, Revelation 20. Verses 7 and 9. Where John says that when the thousand years, that is the millennial kingdom, are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. That means that in the millennial kingdom there has to be people who, who are, no, are not in glorified bodies incapable of sinning anymore, and if the return of Christ at the second coming and the rapture of the church occur simultaneously, then when the rapture comes, all the believers are translated into glorified bodies and all the unbelievers are taken away and judged. And that leaves nobody to enter into the millennium and have children. But if the church is raptured before the tribulation, then all the believers are taken into glory and given glorified bodies that no longer can bear children. And then during the next seven years, there is a period of intense pressure and affliction that is poured out on the earth. And during that period of time, some do come to believe those that are then brought before Christ at the sheep and the goat judgment. Still in their physical human bodies, bodies just like yours and mine. And there at that moment in time, Christ separates them, it says, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and the unrighteous are sent off into eternal punishment. But the righteous are invited into his kingdom still in human bodies where they will there procreate, have children repopulate the earth after the devastations of the tribulation period and at the end of the thousand years, their children and their children's children and their grandchildren, God forbid the vast majority of which, will rise up in unbelief once again and seek to overturn Christ's kingdom at the final battle of Armageddon. Spelled out for us here in Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, the only thing that makes any sense of all of that is for the church to be taken before the tribulation begins, not at the end of the tribulation. So we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture because it allows for children to be born during the millennium. Seventh reason. We believe in a pre tribulational rapture because it provides time for the bema seat judgment of the church. Turn with me to Second Corinthians, chapter five, page eleven fifty-seven. Second Corinthians, chapter five, and verse ten. Second Corinthians 510, the apostle says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You can lay alongside that. First Corinthians chapter three, verses through where the Apostle says that it's not an evaluation or a judgment under condemnation, it is an evaluation of our work. That which we have done for God, whether it has been productive for Him or unproductive for Him. The church is going to be evaluated before the throne of Christ. And that period of evaluation seems to me to fit most Clearly, with a period of a seven-year tribulation in which the church, having been taken first, will be there in the Father's house and will go through this evaluative judgment while the rest of the earth undergoes the tribulation period. So, we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture because it provides time for this Bema Seat evaluative judgment of God. Eighth reason. We believe... In the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, because of the promise of Revelation 3:10. So, slip, uh, slip over here to the right to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, page 1227, Revelation 3 and verse 10. We went through this in great detail. In fact, that's what started this rabbit trail to begin with, with regard to the blessed hope. We went through it in great detail, but there John says, recording the words of Christ, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We noted, and when we studied this verse in detail last time, that the purpose of the tribulation as given here is a time of testing, parazzo in the Greek, an evaluative uh, sort of testing that will reveal the inner character of those who dwell upon the earth, the earth dwellers, that they would be revealed. That is, when the pressure comes, will they turn to Christ or will they blaspheme Him? And since the Philadelphian church had already demonstrated the inner character quality of their heart by them hanging fast to christ their unwillingness to deny him in the midst of their own persecution their obedience to the scripture right as it says there verse 10 therefore there is no need for them to be revealed in a tribulation period their faith has been revealed already they will be kept out from the tribulation period and those who follow in their footsteps that is those that imitate the faith of the church at philadelphia the promise widened here, of course, verse 13, he was near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is plural, those who follow in the footsteps of the Philadelphian church will also be ek, kept from the hour of evaluation that is to come upon the whole earth. So because of the promise of Revelation 310, we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Ninth reason. Because of the promise of John 14. So, turn back in John's Gospel to chapter 14, page 1078. Let me do this. Let me just slip you a little further to the left and lay a little background to what happens in John 14, verses 1 to 3. So take a look at John 13, verse 1. This is the upper room discourse. This is the night in which Jesus was betrayed. This is the final uh, moments that He has with His disciples in which He has important things He needs to teach them and tell them because He is soon to be taken from them. So everything He says here is of of critical nature. There are no wasted words here. There is not much time. Verse 1, Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He should depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Notice what He says, that He is departing out of the world to the Father. He is returning to the Father. In a matter of a few short hours, He will be upon a Roman cross, which will take His life in the most brutal and agonizing way. He will be raised from the dead three days later. He will appear to His disciples in glorified body over a period of 40 days. And then He will be ascended back to the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 1. So this begins the journey back to heaven. John 1, 1, right? He left heaven's portals to come to earth and dwell among us. He is now making the journey back. He knows that it's ready. It's upon Him. He's headed back to heaven. And this is of great concern to His disciples. They are very, very worried. They thought the kingdom was going to be now. A short week ago, he had ridden into the city on the back of a donkey, right? And they had thrown the palm branches in the road before him, thrown their cloaks down before him, proclaimed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Calling out to him as as David's successor, the king of Israel. The city is stirred. They think the kingdom is coming. And then all of a sudden, in a week's time, it's all come to naught. They're discouraged. They're broken. And soon they'll be discouraged even more because they're going to see their hope The hope of Israel hanging on a Roman cross. Jesus says, I'm no longer going to be with you. And they can't handle it. Down to verse 36, 37. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. He's going where? He's going to heaven. He is going to heaven and he's saying, you cannot come now, but you can come later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Best intentions, of course. So now we look at verse 1 of chapter 14. Remembering, of course, that chapter numbers are a late addition to the manuscripts, right? This is a continuation. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, Peter. Believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He is headed back to heaven. And he says to these troubled disciples and through them to us, do not worry. I'm going to do something. I've got a job to do. But when I'm done, I will return and I will bring you with me. He's going to prepare a place in the father's house and then return and take them to that house. Now, it's important to notice what he does not say as well as what he does say. And that is that it's important to understand or notice that he says that he's not returning so that he can be where they are. Right? He's not saying, I'm leaving for a while, but I'm coming back so that I can be where you are. Where are they? On the earth. But he says, I am going to do this work and I am coming back so that you may be where I am. Where am I? In heaven. In heaven. The return of Christ is not to return uh, uh, for His church and bring them to the earth. The return of Christ for His church is that He might take them to be with Him in heaven. When will Jesus return for His church to take them to heaven? Well, according to First Thessalonians 4, I don't know if you've got any paper left that's stuck in there or your thumb maybe. But let me just show you, if you can kind of flip back and forth, let me show you the the correspondence between these two passages. According to John 14:3, Jesus says, "I will come again, right? Well, according to First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, "The Lord Himself will descend from heaven." That sounds like the same thing to me. They both involve a descent from heaven, right? They will come. Christ will come again from heaven. Secondly, the Lord will receive His followers to Himself. Verse 3, that's what He says. I will receive you to Myself. Verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4, He says that they will be caught up to meet Him. Caught up to meet the Lord. They will come to meet Him. He will not come to meet them. They will come to meet Him. Third correspondence. The reason for this is so that they may be where he is. Right? Verse 3, John 14, that where I am there you may be also. 1 Thessalonians 4:17, thus we shall always be where with the Lord. With the Lord. Fourth, correspondence. It's presented as a promise to comfort Troubled hearts. It's all about calming troubled hearts. Verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Verse 18, 1 Thessalonians 4, comfort one another with these words. This is a comforting promise. John 14, 1 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-17, talking about the same event. It's talking about the same event. It is a promise to the believers that they will go to the Father's house. And the means by which they will go to the Father's house according to 1st Thess 4 is the rapture of the church. We believe that this best fits with a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Back to the Father's house. Now, there's an interesting illustration that can be brought alongside this. It is only an illustration, but it is a it's got fascinating correspondences, and so I want to take the time to share it with you. And it comes from a Jewish wedding, okay? A Jewish wedding ceremony. And there are amazing correspondences between a Jewish wedding ceremony and the future of the church. So let me just share a few of those with you. According to Jewish wedding ceremonies of the first century, the prospective groom would leave the father's house. And he would travel to the bride's home and there he would negotiate the mohar or the bride price. That is what was what he was going to give to the, his future father-in-law for his permission that he might marry his daughter. All right. And if you will uh, slip with me over to 1 Corinthians six, notice what the Apostle Paul says, verses 19, that's page 1144, by the way, in those Bibles. First Corinthians six. Verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. It's fascinating, isn't it? We, the church, are a purchased people. So the prospective bride, uh, groom would leave the father's house, go to the bride's home, and negotiate the bride price. Secondly, that would would establish the betrothal period, and so at this moment of establishment of the of the betrothal period, the young couple would be considered married in the eyes of the law, and the bride would be declared as set apart exclusively for her husband. She was set apart exclusively for him. They were not yet uh, had not yet been physically joined, but they had been the uh, marriage had been or uh, betrothal period had been Um, uh, officially declared. And so they would be set apart. Notice uh, verse 11, by the way, 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, such were some of you. You've been washed. You have been sanctified. That means set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So we have been set apart exclusively for one husband. Third, when that marriage covenant was declared there at the initiation of the betrothal period, it was symbolized by the bride and the groom drinking from the same cup of wine over which a betrothal benediction would be announced. let so over to the right a little bit to 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 25. In the same way, He, Jesus, took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. Jesus, with His church, instituted and celebrated the new covenant through the drinking of what? Wine. Groom and bride-to-be. Beyond that, once this ceremony was completed, the betrothal period was established. The groom would leave the bride's home and he would return to the father's house. He would return back to the father's house, leaving her time to be prepared for her wedding and giving him time to establish a place where he might take her when the official ceremony was um, uh, form, uh, formalized. Sounds. A lot like John 14, right? I go to the Father's house to prepare a place to you, for you, right? And if I go, I will come and take you that I might receive you to myself, unless you might be with me always in the Father's house. Now, at the end of the betrothal period, the groom would come to receive his bride. Now she knew, you know, approximately when he was coming. Okay, in, the, in a Jewish wedding ceremony. But she didn't know the exact moment in which he would come. So he would come and typically he would come at night and there would be a torchlight procession. Okay, and all of his best men and and so forth would come with him. You can see this illustrated in Matthew 25 with the 10 foolish versions. Right. And so they would they would come in this procession to the house of the bride. And so to let her know when he got close, he would yell out. There would be a shout. He would shout out to her to let her know I'm here. I'm ready to take you, okay? Again, sounds a lot like First Thessalonians 4, right? With a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Now this wedding party, once the, groom, or the bride and her, her attendants had joined them, they would return back to the Father's house where all the wedding guests would be assembled. And there upon arrival, the bride with her face still veiled and her groom would enter into a special chamber where they would consummate the marriage, they would remain in seclusion for seven days. Seven days in seclusion while the rest of their guests are are, uh, celebrating this wedding. They remain in seclusion for these seven days in which the marriage is consummated. After that time, after the seven days of hiding, the groom and the bride would emerge from this bridal suite the bride would be unveiled so that all could see who she was. Colossians 3, verse 4, Paul says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Fascinating. This does not prove a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. But it is a fascinating correspondence between that which was the cultural norm and that which we believe the Scripture teaches is the destiny of his church that leads us to the 10th reason the 10th reason why we believe a pre-tribulational rapture and that's because of the silence of the uh, uh, regarding the church in revelation chapters 6 through 19 so back to revelation Ekklesia, a common Greek word for the church, is used 19 times. Revelation 1 through 3. And then it ceases to be used in the text again until 22, chapter 22, verse 16. So there is a massive section of this final book in which the word church is never used. Okay. Okay. But it's more than interesting to observe that if the church remains on earth during the tribulation, as some teach, then the rest of the book is silent about what is the role of the church during that time. It is never mentioned. It is never referred to. However, Israel is mentioned and referred to specifically. We know of the 144,000 Jews, right? 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Revelation 7, Revelation chapters 14. We know about the woman who gives birth to the male child. Revelation chapter 12, specifically told to be Israel. So Israel is spoken of, the church nowhere to be found. And beyond that, go over to uh, chapter 13 of Revelation, verse 9. talking about the period of of persecution in the second half of the tribulation, right? Verse 8, it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, that is the the, the beast, and everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain, verse 9, is what I want you to look at. If anyone has an ear, let him hear, period. I'm glad your heads came up, okay? Something's missing from that citation. There is something missing from that citation. What is missing? He, Whoever has an ear, let him hear what? What the Spirit says to the who? Churches. Over and over and over and over again, we are told in the early chapters of Revelation, he who has an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to their churches. Now, here we are in Revelation 13, verse nine, in the in the height of the tribulation period, the same general admonition to pay attention, right, to learn from this. But notice it says he who has an ear to hear. It's not being applied to the church anymore. Why? The church is not there. The church is not there. The church has already been raptured to be in glory with Christ. All right. Now let's apply all this. Okay? Admittedly, there are no silver bullets. I've given you ten and they've been fast. Okay? I don't know if I'm faster this week than I was last week. I was exhausted at the end of the last week It went so fast. It even went faster than I could think. All right? But well, I've given you ten reasons They're like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. When you put the pieces in play, when they lock in together, you end up seeing a picture. And the picture that you see, I think, is very clear. The picture is that Christ will descend and He will take His church out of this world back to the Father's house where He will evaluate their ministry. And in the meantime, there will be all kinds of Troubles and woes to pour out upon this earth, that God will break the back of the rebellious people. So what are the practical benefits of all of this? I've got three of them for you here this morning. OK? Three practical benefits that we can draw from this teaching. Number one: the pre-tribulational rapture of the church produces purity in the church. It produces purity. is designed to produce purity. It is designed to create in our mind an understanding that I could see Christ today. Today He could come. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared... Uh, what we shall be but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure it is a purifying hope the return of jesus christ for his church is a purifying hope when we have our eyes up looking for the return of jesus christ then we don't uh, we're not engaged in the world we are engaged in the eternal We are reminded that Christ has died to set us free from our sin. We are reminded that we are His bride. And just like a human bride, in preparation for her wedding, we will focus on our purity. We want to walk that aisle in white. Not spoiled or soiled garments. To keep your eyes On the imminent return of Jesus Christ for His church is a purifying hope. We want to be found holy and chaste when Christ returns, just like a human bride. Secondly, it encourages perseverance. The pre-tribulational rapture of the church encourages perseverance. We live in a hostile world. We live in a world in which it is easy to grow discouraged, right? We need to be reminded That Christ could come any moment and take us to the Father's house. Our rest is not here, but where? It's there. So, hang on. How do you like that, huh? Hang on. Hang on. Christ is coming. That's what He says to the church, right? In Philadelphia in Revelation 3, hang on, I'm coming. He says it to us. He says it to you. He says it to me. Hang on. I'm coming. Persevere. Don't give up. I could be there any moment. You don't know. I'm right there. The judge is standing at the door. I'll I'll be there. Hang on. Hang on. Third. It promotes evangelism. The pre-tribulational rapture of the church promotes evangelism. There is an urgency to the gospel message. There is an urgency to repent and believe. You may die. There is a sense in which you may die without being made right with God through Christ. And that is true. But there is an urgency as well. And I think it's an even greater urgency in the sense that Christ is right at the door. That He could return at any moment. And when He returns and takes His church to be with Him, The curtain on human history falls. If you are unprepared, you will face the unspeakable horrors of the tribulation. You want to know what it will be like? Then you just go a nice slow read through chapters 6-19 through of the book of Revelation and you will know what you face. The Scripture is clear. When Christ comes to take His church, From that moment on, the earth is plunged into unspeakable horror. Horror that rivals the days of Noah's flood. A time when Satan will personally empower his representatives to persecute those who oppose his will. Revelation 13. A time when heavenly judgment will fall upon this planet in the form of earthquakes and plagues and cosmic disturbances and war and famine. And it will be of such intensity that people will cry out for the rocks to cover them and hide them from the wrath of Almighty God. A time of such intense judgment and persecution that according to Mark chapter 13 and verse 20, if the Lord had not cut it short, there would be no life left. On this planet. Christ could come at any time. And take his church. Amen. And after we're gone. This building is still going to be here. It's still going to be here. There won't even be any holes in the ceiling. When we go. And that's good. Because I'm afraid there will be some of you left. And I wouldn't want you to get wet. This is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. When Christ comes, the true church will leave. And there will be some left. I urge you. I urge you in the strongest possible terms. If you don't know for sure that when Christ comes, that He will take you to Himself, then you need to make it right and you need to make it right today. Today. We finish here in a little while. There'll be some folks standing over there by that cross. If you'll come and talk with them, they'll open the scriptures with you and they will show you how you can be made right with God. How you can be assured of the fact that when the trumpet sounds, you will go to be with Christ. Let's pray.